0: In the Bible, not only do places matter, but more importantly, in some instances, what occurs in a certain place ends up foreshadowing some bigger ideal. For example, Abraham offering his only begotten son Isaac, specifically on a mountain known as Moriah, intended to foreshadow the moment that God would offer his only begotten son on the exact same mountain range. Something happening in the past, in a place, foreshadowing a future occurrence. In fact, the very place where God parted the Jordan River so that His people might cross into the land of promise proved to be the exact same place, location, where John would baptize Jesus, initiating His ministry that would ultimately provide our passage across the great river of death into the promised land of heaven. We understand the identical spot where Jesus ascended to heaven some 2,000 years ago. The Mount of Olives will be the same place that he'll one day return in order to crush the armies of evil and usher in a kingdom of peace for all the world to enjoy. When it comes to the Bible, places matter. What this means is that anytime you find something significant happening, in the scriptures, mainly the New Testament scriptures, in a particular place, taking a moment to look back to see if anything else happened in that location can prove to be very helpful in unpacking the deeper implications, lessons, meaning, ramifications for what you're actually studying. This idea will make a little bit more sense after we, we read a familiar portion of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, we read that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Canerius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up to Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because well, he was out of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. so it was that while they were there in that location, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. One aspect of this story that doesn't garner enough attention is this strange detail. That because Caesar Augustus issues this decree requiring everyone in the Roman Empire to travel back to their city of origin to be registered, that Joseph had to lug his very pregnant wife Mary from their home in Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem, a suburb south of Jerusalem. Now on the surface, it would be easy to chalk up this development to really bad luck on the part of Joseph and Mary. A Roman emperor, sitting on a throne 2,500 miles away, whimsically decides he wants an updated census for tax purposes. So without care for how this would affect anyone else, he issues this decree, leaving you no choice but to make this very difficult journey into Bethlehem. All things considered, for Mary and Joseph, in light of the dynamic, the timing could not have been worse. This evening, instead of seeing this development as purely coincidental, I want you to understand that the place that Jesus was to be born was of such importance that God was indeed behind the scenes pulling the strings of a clueless Augustus. Augustus was doing God's bidding. You see, it was not enough for God to send His only Son, Jesus, into the world. Not just enough for that Son to be born of a virgin, to be born of Mary. But God specifically wanted His Son to be born in a stable located in a field just outside the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So why Bethlehem? Of all places. Again, there are times when what has happened in a certain space can be incredibly helpful at providing important insights into what is presently taking place. Well, the ancient city of Bethlehem is mentioned in passing throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the first mention of Bethlehem is when Jacob, Genesis 35, buries his beloved Rachel in the city of of Bethlehem. But the interesting reality is that there are only really two stories of any notable consequence that play out in this city of Bethlehem. With Bethlehem as its backdrop. Working backwards in time, it's amazing to consider that according to 1 Samuel chapter 16, it would be in these same fields of Bethlehem that a prophet named Samuel would call out a young shepherd boy as God's choice to be king over Israel, David. Not only was it prophetically important that Jesus descend from the lineage of David, but the anointing of God's pick to be king in these fields of Bethlehem foreshadow a birth of another king in the same location a thousand years later the king of kings, the Lord of lords Emmanuel. Well, it's true. We could spend our entire time tonight just unpacking that one idea alone. I want to take you back instead a little further in time to another occasion, another event that took place in these same fields approximately 100 years before the anointing of King David. And hopefully you'll see by the end of tonight's study how the fascinating love story of Ruth and Boaz adds an entirely new wrinkle to how we should see the birth of Jesus. Ruth, we'll spend the majority of our time there this evening. In chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, we're told that it came to pass. In the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. As was typical during this time period of the judges, famine was often God's judgment on account of Israel's rebellion, their disobedience. But we're told that a certain man, in light of this famine, a man of Bethlehem, Judah, this word Bethlehem, it means the house of bread. He went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Sadly, instead of enduring the famine, this certain man furthered his rebellion against God by leaving the promised land for the neighboring country of Moab. Such an act was the equivalent of Of abandoning God, abandoning God's people, thumbing your nose at the divine. We're told that the man's name was Elamech. His name means God is my king, implying he did have some type of spiritual heritage. We're also told that the name of his wife was Naomi. I love that name. It means my delight. And the name of his two sons were Malon, which means sickly, and Chilion, which means "weakling." They were Ephraimites of Bethlehem, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, doesn't take long for this particular story to spiral from being bad, leaving the promised land for Moab was not a good thing, to becoming much worse. Verse 3 of chapter 1, we're told, Then Elamech, Naomi's husband, died. This word died in the original language, it means he was executed. He didn't die of natural causes, he was slaughtered. And Naomi was left with her two sons. Imagine being left with sickly and weakling. No doubt, two winners. Now we're told that they took wives of the women of Moab. Again, totally forbidden by God for a Hebrew to marry a Moabite. They took wives. The name of one was Orpah. Every time I see that, I think Oprah. Neither here nor there. Her name means gazelle. Must have been a a beauty. And the name of the other was Ruth. Her name means friendship. And we're told that they dwelt there about 10 years. Verse 5 says, Then Malon and Chilion also died. I know that's a shocker for a sickly and weakling to pass away. But the word again implies that their death was similar to their father's. They were executed. They were killed. So the women survived. Her two sons, her husband. Naomi arose. She's had enough with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard that the Lord had visited His people by giving them bread. God's judgment had been lifted. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was to return to the land of of Judah. And Naomi, Naomi said to Orpah and Ruth, Go, return each to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you've dealt with the dead, their husbands, and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest each in the house of her husband. Naomi, at this point, she's had enough of it. She left the land. She went to Moab. Her her husband dies. Her two boys marry. That's great. They don't have kids. That's not cool. They also die. So now she's in a foreign land left with two foreign women, daughter-in-laws, and she's like, I'm out. I'm done. My husband's been killed. My sons have been killed. In fact, according to verse 13 of chapter 1, Naomi even views her loss as the judgment of God for leaving Judah in the first place. She says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Since there was nothing to keep her in Moab, Naomi wisely decides, you know, it's time for me to go home. It's time for me to return, not just to Judah, but specifically back to Bethlehem. While these two Moabites, Orpah and, and Ruth, are bound legally to Naomi in marriage. Because neither of them had children or heirs, and the prospects that Naomi would be able to have new sons for them to wed, well, that was impossible by this point in her life. Naomi graciously decides to release them from their marital and family commitments. She encourages them. Ladies, I'm going back. Go home. Return to your your mother's house. Remarry. Move on with your lives. It should be noted that going with Naomi to Bethlehem would have produced a bleak future for either of these two women. It was dangerous for a Moabite to live in the land of Israel. Beyond that, a Moabite widow remarrying? Well, those prospects were highly unlikely from a cultural perspective. In the end, Orpa bails. She's like, peace out. She goes home. And yet we end up seeing a very interesting reaction from this woman, Ruth. We're told that Ruth clung to Naomi. And Naomi said, look, Orpah has gone back to her people. She's gone back to her gods. Return with her. But Ruth said, I beg you, or entreat me. I don't want to leave you. I don't want to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God, where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. The Lord so do to me, and more also of anything but death parts you and me. So when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go, she stopped speaking to her. Basically, she accepts Ruth's wishes. And the two of them went Until they came to Bethlehem. There are a few things that I should point out about this woman, Ruth. First, there's no question from the text we just read that she had a real bond, a real connection with Naomi. I mean, it went deep. Secondly, it's also evident through Naomi's witness that Ruth had come at some point, somehow, some way, to a genuine faith in the true God of Israel. Not only does she want to go with Naomi because she loved her mother-in-law, but Ruth was making a decision here to reject Moab, to reject Moab's gods, to place her life into the hands of the true God of Israel. She says, again, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. It was personal. As a Gentile living in Bethlehem, Ruth was not disillusioned. She knew her life would be hard. As a widow, she would occupy the, the lowest rung of society. And yet she makes this decision that in spite of what her future might look like, it was better to be a part of the people of God if that meant she was at the bottom rung than remain as a Moabite. Ruth here has experienced a true and lasting conversion. Well, Ruth 1, verse 22. We're told that Naomi returned Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. At the beginning of the barley harvest. This would make it early fall. Chapter 2, verse 1 opens that in Bethlehem, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimech. His name was Boaz. So we have a bit of a shifting of the scene. Naomi, Ruth, they come back to the land. And then chapter 2 opens, introducing us to a new character, this man Boaz. He'll become a central part of our story. In verse 1, we're told that Boaz was a man of great wealth. But he also happened, interestingly enough, to be a relative of Naomi's husband, Elamech. Aside from the fact that Boaz was rich, we're also told that he's a relative. Now, this word relative, it's an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It can be translated in other places as a kinsman, a redeemer. The word in the Hebrew is goel. What makes the word important is that it implies that Boaz was was more than just related to Elamech. According to the law, Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, the goel, this was an official title. It was a designation that gave Boaz a significant role and responsibility in his larger family. He was what we would call in theological terms, their kinsman redeemer. Let me very quickly explain what this means. In Hebrew society, the person with this designation, typically the patriarch, the goel, had the legal authority to redeem a family member who had fallen into slavery for economic reasons. The goel could step into the situation. He could deal with the the creditors. He could satisfy the debt. In fact, he could satisfy the debt without any interest. He had a very unique place. Additionally, the goel could redeem family land. that Maybe you lost gambling or through some type of repossession. He could step and say, no, 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 that's part of the family. I know he squandered it. I'm going to redeem this by paying whatever it costs. Legally, you would have to sell it to him. In fact, if the situation warranted, the goel could redeem a childless widow by providing her an heir in order to maintain family continuity, name, legacy. Widows were at a terrible disadvantage in this culture. They needed sons, not only to help provide for them, but to carry on a family lineage. Boaz, as the goel had that authority, he had that right. Well, verse 2 So Ruth says to Naomi, the story's about to kind of develop. She says, let me go to the fields and glean heads of grain after really him whose side I might find favor. I'm going to go out. Hopefully someone will kindly on me. So Naomi says, go, my daughter. In ancient Israel, the welfare system allowed the poor to go into a field following after those reaping. And anything that had fallen off to the side was to be left and it could be collected. So you could go out each day, collect as much grain uh, as you could carry, enough to make bread to eat. This was the welfare system. So this is Ruth's intention. <laughs> we need food. I'm going to go out. Hopefully I'll find somebody. It'll be favorable. I can get us some provisions. So she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And Ruth happened happened, to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elamech. Now, scene shifts back to Boaz, verse 5. He arrives. He's inspecting his field. It's harvest time. wants to see what's going on. We're told that Boaz said to his servant in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Let me translate that into more of a common vernacular. Bada bing, bada boom. Is she available? <laughs> so the servant in charge says to Boaz, well, this is the, the young Moabite woman that came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. So word had spread. And she said, she came, she says, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And so she's come, she's continued working from morning to now. She did take a little rest time. So Boaz says to Ruth, You listen, my daughter. Do not glean in other fields, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women, those that were also gleaning. Let your eyes be on the fields that they reap, and go after them. I've commanded the young men not to touch you. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. There is no question that Boaz, in the subtle way, he's flirting He's making sure that Ruth knows that there's no reason to go to other fields. You stay in my field, baby. In fact, I told the young men, stay away. They're to draw you out water. You just enjoy being here. Now, for most of the men in Israel, because Ruth was a Gentile, compounding that she was also now a widow, she would have been untouchable. Like, no matter how much of a babe she might have been, most Hebrew men would not have been interested. Two strikes. And yet what's, what's fascinating about our story is that right from the jump, right from the beginning, the moment he lays eyes on her, Boaz, oh, totally different reaction, right? Boaz isn't like all the other men. I wonder why. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we're given a very interesting detail. Probably a passage of Scripture you skip right on through. It's a genealogy. Most people don't read the genealogies. But in the genealogy, we're told that Boaz possessed a very unique spiritual legacy. A legacy that would probably have given him a very soft spot for a young Gentile woman who had rejected her people to be part of the people of God and was now adopting, adapting to a new life in Israel. You see, Boaz's mother was none other than Rahab the harlot. If you recall the story of Jericho, two spies go in. They're going to get caught. Rahab hides them, protects them. She sees what's going on. She's got this interesting faith. She asks the two spies, I know that you're going to conquer. I know what's inevitable. Remember me. And they tell her to, to hang out this scarlet cord from her window. And she was spared. She becomes part of the the children of Israel. and She has a son whose name is is Boaz. Now, Boaz, verse 14, he says to Ruth at mealtime, Come here, and eat of the bread. Dip your piece of bread in the vinegar, sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her. She ate, was satisfied, and kept some back. Basically, this is an ancient lunch date what's kind of happening here. And you know it's a lunch date really for one reason. Ruth doesn't gorge herself, but notice she took home leftovers. So she doesn't eat everything on her plate. She keeps back some for later. Verse 15. So Ruth rose up to glean. So following the lunch and Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, which was odd. Do not reproach her. Also let some of the grain from the bundles fall off purposely for her. Leave it so she can have it. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. It was about an ephah of barley, quite a bit. She took it and went to the city, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, saw what she had gleaned. Now understand, what Boaz is doing here, good old Bo, is he's going way beyond the requirements that the law stipulated and these type of welfare dynamics in regards to gleaning. And he's doing this to communicate his affection for Ruth. This was highly unusual. In fact, Boaz, man, the guy's got some game because he enlists the help of some qualified wingman to help him, you know, woo young Ruth. According to the next several verses, his advances are not only noticed by Ruth, they also catch the attention of Naomi. Naomi. Ruth 2 closes with kind of a general summary of what happens over the course of really the next several weeks. We're told, so Ruth stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with Naomi, her mother-in-law. Now, one aspect to this role of the goel that I should mention at this juncture in our story is that though Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer, meaning that he has every right legally to marry her, The goel only assumed that responsibility if asked. This wasn't something he could impose. Boaz is doing everything to woo Ruth. But when it was all said and done, Ruth was the one that would have to come to Boaz. She'd have to make the move. Again, chapter 2 closes with both the barley and the wheat harvest coming to an end, meaning that the natural interactions between Boaz and Ruth were about to become less and less frequent. (laughs) As you turn from one chapter to the next, you have to consider, will Ruth seal the deal? Come on, what are you doing? He's ready. You sense it. You feel it. It's a classic love story. You're hanging on pins and needles. It appears that it's time for Naomi to intervene. Chapter 3 opens then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? Like, but Naomi's basically saying, Ruth, Boaz is your Goel. He's clearly interested. What are you waiting for? She continues, in fact, Boaz is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment. Go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known until the man's finished what he's eating and drinking. But then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place that he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Like Naomi here, she's playing matchmaker. And she's also given Ruth a little bit of a push. She's providing some tactical advice because that night was going to mark the conclusion of another wonderful harvest, signifying God's provision and blessing. There would be a celebration on the threshing floor, a perfect night, a party for Ruth to make a move. Naomi tells her, "Hun." Tonight's a big night. Go take a bath. Clean yourself up. Put on a little perfume. Your best dress. You know, the little black one. And you go, but but you need to wait. Wait until the man's done eating and drinking. Like, don't interrupt his meal. But when he's done, it's time to move in. And when the time's right, Naomi instructs Ruth, go in, uncover his feet, lie down, adding, Boaz will tell you what to do. Now, please understand, culturally, Naomi is not telling Ruth to make some type of sexual advance. I know how your little minds were reading all of that. Shame on you. In fact, laying at someone's feet, it was a cultural sign of respect, of submissiveness, like, what's Naomi actually saying to Ruth? She's saying, go in, uncover his feet, sit there, surrender to him, formally call him to be your redeemer. So it happened. I love this story. It happened at midnight that Boaz was startled. You would be too by a woman lying at his feet. He's sound asleep, good meal, good drink. He's out. Then his feet start getting cold. Man, my tote, my co- covers, what? And then there's a woman, so he's, he's startled, and he says, who are you? And so she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. You're my Goel. Then Boaz said to Ruth, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. Again, the, the King James doesn't really translate that well. Uh, Boaz is literally saying, <laughs> "Yes, about time! All right." That's that's really in the Hebrew. <laughs> Ruth here, she makes the move to no one's surprise. Boaz is more than ready to accept. Uh, though we don't have time. Uh, to dig into everything that follows. Very interesting stuff. You can study it on your own. But chapter 4, verse 13, kind of wraps up this love story, telling us that ultimately, in the end, Boaz takes Ruth, and she became his wife. And he goes into her, and the Lord gave her conception, which is interesting because back in Moab, she was barren. Ten years, no children. One night with Boaz, boom. And she bore a son, we're told as her goel, as her kinsman redeemer, Boaz has taken her as his bride. My friend, I I don't find it to be a coincidence that in the same fields of Bethlehem, in which the baby Jesus lay on this peaceful night, some 1,100 years beforehand, The love story of Boaz and and Ruth plays itself out. Same fields. And you know why I don't find that to be a coincidence? Christmas is actually a love story. Now, Zach, how is it a love story? I'll point you to one verse as proof. John 3, 16 says what? For God so loved the world that He what? He gave His only begotten Son. And and really, that's what Christmas is about. God giving a gift, His Son. But what was the motivation of it? Oh, it was His love. I mean, can you really think of any greater demonstration of love than God giving His only Son? To be, and don't miss this, what? What? Goel. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is you and my kinsman redeemer. Boaz, within our story, presents for us a really beautiful picture of Jesus. He's the picture of Christ and what Christ has done for us. Because Jesus came to earth as a man. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. He became part, God, becoming part of the human family. Because of this, he possesses the legal authority as our relative to be our goel, to redeem us to himself. While like Ruth, the world may have left us beggars, just like Boaz, Jesus, he looked upon us in love, was moved to act in compassion, wooing us to himself. Why? Because he desired to make us his bride. Indeed, upon that still night in Bethlehem, there lay a man of great wealth, Argoel, Jesus. It's incredible as it is to consider the picture of Jesus we find in Boaz. Just like those motley group of shepherds who sought out the holy child that silent night, Ruth. Ruth! Presents for us a picture of anyone willing to venture out into a field of Bethlehem seeking a redeemer. Consider again Ruth and how her journey to this field in Bethlehem began. <laughs> oh, the story, well, it would have been brief, right? If she had chosen the same destiny as Orpah, but no, she didn't. Ruth saw a light. And Naomi, Elijah and Naomi she wanted for herself. So what does she do? She decided, she made a decision to reject her present life. She counted the cost. She knew what it, would, what it would demand. But she was determined that being a beggar in Israel was better than any life she would ever have. In Moab, she rejected the false gods of her youth in order to pursue the true and the living God. Understand, it's no accident that Ruth's incredible journey from Moab to Judah then led to a field in Bethlehem, a field where she found a man who could be her redeemer, her kin. And yet, like that time in Moab, for Boaz to be her redeemer, Ruth would also have to make another decision, wouldn't she? She would have to, to call. Boaz could redeem Boaz could provide a life she could never have imagined. But she would have to come to him and she would have to call upon his name. Boaz could woo and he could pursue, but ultimately it was Ruth that had to make a decision. One of the the details of this story that I love, it's it's this, this idea that Ruth comes to Boaz when... You might might have missed this. But she comes at midnight. Midnight. In fact, things were so dark that upon realizing someone was at his feet, Boaz's first reaction wasn't to um, automatically assume it was Ruth. He couldn't tell it was her. To the point that he has to ask, Who's there? She's at his feet, not like a great distance. Who are you? And then Ruth She answers his call. She expresses her intention. Boaz can't wait to accept blessed are you of the Lord my daughter. Now think about that for just a minute. Naomi wanted Ruth to call Boaz as her redeemer, right? And no question Naomi wants to be sure that Boaz will accept. So what's her advice? Ruth, you need Boaz to accept you. So you need to clean up. Put on your best perfume, wear your nicest dress. Ruth, you need to make sure that you impress him so he accepts you. The irony, though, is that none of those things are even relevant by the time Ruth approaches Boaz because it's too dark to see. Consider, at what point in our story did Boaz fall in love with Ruth. My friend, it was the very moment he saw her. He didn't even know her name. Nothing had to be said. No promises given. No demands made. Instead, Boaz fell for a sweaty Ruth who was in the field, all dirty, hardly looking her best. You know, carrying out the type I hope you know this evening that there is nothing you can do to cause Jesus, your Redeemer, to love you any more than He already does. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Him. You don't have to dress yourself up to hope that He might accept you. The Bible couldn't be more clear that God so loved the world. A world that was lost, dirty, grimy, and sinful. He loved that world. Hardly presentable so much that He gave His only begotten Son. Never forget, my friend, God's gift to you is not predicated upon you. God's gifts are never predicated upon the receiver other than you receive. Amazingly, Ruth's decision to reject her world, to venture into a field of Bethlehem, to petition her Redeemer, doesn't just end with her becoming a bride and discovering a new life in Him. How glorious that is. But in chapter 4, verse 22, we're told that her and Boaz, they have a son. His name is Obed. I would have liked to have named a son Obed. Jessica wanted nothing to do with that. But Obed, we're told, had a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son. So her grandson, Jesse, has another son and names him David. King David. Like, Not only does this mean this Moabite widow would ultimately be the great-grandmother of King David himself, but it means according to Matthew 1, that Ruth has a direct family link to none other than Jesus Christ. All because she made a decision to leave Moab and all because she came and she asked Boaz to redeem her. You see, what's incredible is that Ruth, yes, she chose something better than her world had to offer, but so radical is the decision she made led her to a Redeemer that made her part, literally, of the family of God. Places matter. They matter in the Bible. This field in Bethlehem is no different. Not only does it tell us this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a humble manger, would one day be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but that location also tells us that Christmas... It's really a love story. of How much God loves you. This evening, like Ruth, will you reject the world that you know in order to come and fall at the feet of Jesus and call upon Him to be your Redeemer? (laughs) The moment that Jesus saw you, even before the foundations of the world, his heart for you, God's heart for you, has always been nothing but love. And since the moment you were born, continuing right to this very instance, Jesus, your Redeemer, has been wooing you in little ways, ways you might not have even known. Oh, look at that, a big sheep just came falling. Oh, look, at, it's for me. And yet God's behind the scenes showing his love, demonstrating his love, wooing, will you come? I love you, I want to redeem you. Will you come? Will you surrender? Will you come to my feet? Friend, if like Ruth, if you take this bold step, not only will you discover a life that transcends anything you could ever imagine, but if you come to Jesus, you will be included in the family of of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. As the guys come and begin distributing the communion elements as well as the candles for our candle lighting ceremony, for those of us who have already made such a decision, like Ruth, to come and to accept Jesus. As they're distributing the elements, I just want you to take a moment and I want you to consider again the implications of Jesus. We think of Jesus in all kinds of ways, but think of him as your Boaz, as your Redeemer. I love Ruth's response to Boaz. When he inquires, Who's at my feet? she replies, How? I am Ruth. I'm your maidservant. I'm your servant, not out of obligation, not because I have to, but because I want to. I'm here because I love you too. It's a response to his love that drew Ruth. But then notice what she says. She says, take me under your wing, for you are my Goel. Christian, partaking of communion, this bread that represents the body of Jesus. His body sacrificed to atone for our sin. To atone so that you and I, as we've seen in Leviticus, might be right with God, as well as the cup. Jesus says that represents the blood of my new covenant, symbolizing His cleansing power found in His blood. A new life we have through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. As you partake of communion in just a moment... I want you to remember that these elements, they remind us that there is no better place for you and I to reside than under the protective wing of our redeemer. that protective wing of love. I'll just give it a minute for the, the elements to get their way. In the scriptures we have, throw a big word. I read it in a book. Anthropomorphic attributes of God. Basically what that means is that our human language limits the ability to describe something that transcends what we know and what we can even comprehend. That there are things about God that are hard to articulate in a human vernacular. A limited one at best. And so we employ various phrases to try to describe something that's hard to describe. Again, Ruth is saying something here using an attribute that is descriptive. Boaz doesn't have wings. (laughs) God doesn't have wings. Over and over and over, we'll read it in the Psalms. That I might rest under the shadow of your wings. Protection, comfort. You know, I imagine as I think of Ruth, like what was it that kept her from coming? Like it's all the way to the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. It wasn't as though that, that first moment it was clear who Boaz was and what he intended. Like you think, well, why not just right then, Ruth? What were you waiting for? She waits to the end of the bar, and then the end of the weed harvest. And then it takes Naomi. you like, what are you doing? You know who he is. You know what he can do. You know the life he can provide. Why are you waiting? I think, and again, the text doesn't say, so I'm, I'm using a little license but I can imagine that she didn't feel worthy. She didn't feel worthy. And and the reason I, I speculate that is that so often, you know the thing that keeps me from the cross? Is that I don't feel worthy. I know what it represents. I know what he did. But I also know me. And I know how rotten I am. And I know how frail I am. And I know how far I fall. It's the goodness of God. And yet Ruth reaches a point where she's like, it doesn't matter if I'm worthy. When you're loved. Again, it's a gift not predicated you it's based in his goodness it's based in his love we make the statement that there is nothing you can do to cause Jesus to love you any more than he does and that's a truth mainly because God's immutable he's unchanging he's unwavering he loves you and that love remains but Zach I did no 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 there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any less he loves you. And it's that love that keeps us coming back. And it keeps us coming back. He doesn't judge us. He doesn't hold a condemnation over us. He's not guilting us into it. He just loves us. There's nothing you can do to cause God to love you anymore. There's no work. There's no sacrifice. All of those things are a response to His love. They're not to earn His love. But on the flip side to it, there's nothing that, can, that you can do to cause Him to love you less to lose his love. He loves you. And so these elements were told on that night as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. This symbolizes how much I love you. Do this in remembrance of me and so we do as well. It's a little bitter, isn't it? A matzah. I kind of feel like God could have picked a better piece of bread. Say, this is my body. And just the driest thing possible. It gets stuck in your teeth. Hard to get out, isn't it? Immediately your mouth kind of parches, dries. I think it's designed that way. When we think of the death of Jesus, there should be a bitterness. A thankfulness, but a sober, soberness. But how glorious that, that God knew that there would be that bitter taste, so he follows it up with wine. <laughs> oh, I know it's going to sour. I know your mouth's going to dry. I know it's a tough thought, but that's not where it ends. You see, there's a new covenant Jesus died, but he rose. We don't worship a dead Jesus, we worship a living Savior. We don't worship a baby in a manger. We worship the king of kings sitting on the throne at the right hand of God. And so Jesus said, he took the cup and he gave thanks. He says, drink from it. I can imagine, yeah, my mouth. I need something to drink. Drink. Enjoy it. This is my blood of a new covenant shed for the remission of sins so we partake. As we close with a candle lighting ceremony. And the singing of Silent Night. And if Ray and Chad and, and Allison, if you guys could make your way up. As, as we kind of get set up for this. I, I want just one, one quick moment. For you to also think back just momentarily. About Naomi. Naomi. There's no doubt, Naomi. It was far from perfect, right? She married an idiot and then followed him to a foreign land that she shouldn't have gone. And then she had two sons, sickly and weakling. Like, down, down. Like, it just, bad decision, bad decision, bad decision. Dead husband, two dead sons. Okay, I'm going back to the land. Like, like Naomi was far from perfect, right? She left Bethlehem. And yet the thing that I find so interesting about Naomi, in spite of her faults, there was still something about her that so inspired Ruth that she forsaked everything else to go with her. That Naomi still possessed a light that Ruth wanted for herself. I want your people to be my people. I want your God to be my God. You're far from perfect. I don't know if you knew that. Ask your spouse. They'll let you know. You're far from perfect. And yet Jesus doesn't ask us to be perfect. He asks us to just be a light. And you don't have to work hard to shine. You just let it. The question is not, are you good at shining or bad? Just are you? I find it so fascinating that Jesus, he told his disciples, after talking about being the light of the world, he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. but They put it upon a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house, so let your light so shine like Naomi, before men. And why? So like Ruth, they might see God's good works in you and glorify Him, not you. So they might see something of the divine shining, radiating from the fallen. Naomi. So if we could start lighting. Father, Lord, I just ask that you would take this time.